we ready? We are. Let me, um, Kirk, I have a, a brief bio to read about you as an introduction. Um, okay. All right, everybody, thank you for attending this session. Uh, it is recorded. Um, and we will also make it available to playback. Uh, and, and we also, this is probably one we're gonna convert to a podcast and we'll get that out to people as well. But thank you, I'm Kate Ashley. I'm the director of the Physician Executive MBA program. I wanna thank Dr. Don Leiter, who's on our faculty, who spends a lot of time organizing this, um, pedi this, um, this physician leadership symposium. And I am happy uh, and very glad that Dr. Kirk Pinto is here with us today. He is a, a busy man flying around Texas doing what he does. And so we thank him for taking the time today. He's been practicing pediatric urology at Cook Children's for more than 20 years. He's also served as the chief of surgery at Cook Children's and he's certified by the American Board of Urology and has a certificate of added qualification in pediatric urology. He is a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Dr. Pinto is also a member of the Society for Pediatric Urology as well as the American Urological Association. He is also a recognized presenter at scientific meetings nationally and internationally. He has been honored with best doctor accolades multiple times in publications locally and statewide. We're very proud to consider him part of the PIMPA family. Kirk, I'm gonna turn it over to you. Uh, thanks very much, that, that's a great introduction. I, I wanna hire whoever wrote that for me. That makes me sound great and I appreciate it. Also, uh, good morning or good afternoon. I don't know where everyone is. Uh, I'm happy uh, to be here and I'm happy that, uh, to have this opportunity to talk to you. Um, if you've practiced medicine in the, per in the last five years, you have heard uh, or taken a test or read an article about burnout. And I don't mean to add to your burden about burnout. I wanna look at it from a little different um, perspective from one that's unique to us, uh, those of us who are physicians who have MBAs. When I was in the class several years ago, uh, a lot of us sat in that uh, room and uh, thought about how we were gonna parlay this degree into some career uh, advancement uh, when we got out of class. And I would uh, tell you that things, as medicine becomes more corporate, places where corporate medicine bangs against patient care is, is the niche where uh, physicians with MBAs are gonna thrive. And unfortunately, there is burnout, but fortunately for those of us who have these uh, special sets of skills, it, is, uh, it can be a blessing. The curse of burnout is obvious. About 50% of us uh, have experienced burnout, so we definitely have some form of burnout personally or have um, or know someone who has uh, suffered from burnout. And that is definitely a curse, and we'll explain that a little bit as we go along. But as I said, um, this is an opportunity for us who are looking uh, in all things where medicine and business hit together. Uh, it's, it's a place where we are unquestionably, undeniably, and unequivocally, unequivocally the best people for this job. And so first, in order to be able to speak intelligently about burnout with um, people uh, in, oops, in the administration, you have to have a common uh, set, a common understanding of what this is. And this is the standard definition for burnout. Uh, many people are surprised to know that, this, that the standard definition for burnout was written about 30 years ago um, by a um, Christina Maslach, who is a uh, psychologist who is still practicing. She wrote a book uh, back in the 80s about um, burnout in the helping profession, which at that time she included teaching and nursing. Um, but we found obviously that burnout is uh, affects people in all levels of um, 
of healthcare and in fact, all industry. And so when you look at a standardized um, definition for burnout for medical personnel, it includes these very uh, important three characterizations. One is depersonalization. Um, you may know that people who are burnout have cynical or negative attitudes toward their patients. Uh, people who are burnout experience emotional exhaustion. And that all of us know what physical exhaustion is. You go home tired, but you come back rested. Emotional exhaustion, you go home tired and you come back tired. Um, and there is a feeling of decreased personal achievement, uh, understanding that we all went into medicine because we thought it was a noble profession. And unfortunately, people who have burnout lose that attitude that this is a noble profession. And while some people are, are surprised that burnout was um, characterized 30 years ago, you may know that the idea of burnout has been around for a long time. And this is a quote from the late uh, 19th century, uh, which talks about, which, which I think very eloquently talks about how a job, how a career that doesn't give you anything back can hollow out a person um, and, and really bother them uh, deeply and personally. And again, those of you that experience burnout or have known people with burnout know that this is a very, um, this is a very apt description. So a little bit about me, why I'm the one talking to you. I work, as uh, Dr. Atsley said, at Cook Children's Medical Center, which is a very large uh, pediatric hospital in Fort Worth. We are not associated with any uh, medical school. Or we are a private institution. Um, if you've ever spoken to someone who was born in Texas, you may, you may, they may have talked to you about how big it is. Uh, they're very proud of that. And uh, Cook Children's Hospital covers uh, an area the size of New Mexico from the Fort Worth side of the Metroplex all the way out to the New Mexico line. Uh, we fly physicians on private jets to clinics in Amarillo and Midland. Uh, we go uh, down almost to San Antonio. And right now I'm speaking to you from Waco. And so we cover quite a big area. We're a big medical staff, more than 300 physicians, more than 400 nurse practitioners and, and physician assistants. We cover 30, subspecial, uh, 30 specialties and subspecialties. And most of those 300 physicians are, um, are specialists or tertiary specialists. And so it's a pretty big institution. When I did my OAP with the great Dick Reisenstein, uh, the problem that we wanted to look at at Cook Hospital was the administration said that people who just started working here really weren't indoctrinated very well, really weren't as happy as the people who work here five years or more. And so I did everything that you all have learned about. I did value ladders, I did surveys, I did a bunch of different uh, testing methods that Dr. Eisenstein worked me through. And what I realized, what I found is that one, their supposition was wrong. The people were just as happy when they got here as when they'd worked here five years. But what I did find that was difficult, that was different than we expected, was about 50% of the doctors had some profound dissatisfaction with their job, and a full nearly 10% of them had very real problems in their interaction with the corporation, in their interaction with what we call uh, the Cook Physician Network. Um, as most of you did, I took these results to our CEO, and our CEO sits very high on a board. He runs eight different companies. Uh, he really isn't involved in physician relations very much or patient care at all. He does a fantastic job, though, and he sort of dismissed these findings. He said he didn't think that people at Cook Children's were that unhappy, uh, and he thanked me for my work but sort of sent me on my way. A few months later, based on the fact that the that board that the CEO sits on is uh, made up of corporate giants, they understood that burnout was a real thing because it was a real thing in their corporations. And they told and they had our uh, institution give the MASLAC survey. This is a test that many of you have taken, and I'll explain it a little more in a minute. 
Um, but why I'm showing you this is by accident, I was right. Uh, that if you looked at our, this is, a, this is our distribution and this is a pretty common distribution. We're not worse or better than anybody else, but about half the people at the institution were happy with their job, but fully half had some significant problems. And right here's that 10% that I found. And so after they got these results, Lo and behold, the CEO called me and he said, we're starting a physician committee uh, to try to mitigate burnout. Um, and we'd like you to come back and look at this because obviously you found this a different way. And what I had found is that the things that were causing burnout at our institution were things like a lack of autonomy, poor work-life balance, all those things you've heard a bunch about. And I will talk to you a little bit more about it as we go along. First of all, um, if you're gonna be, if you're gonna sit in a room uh, where people are going to talk about burnout and they're going to turn to you and ask for advice, you have to understand why burnout is important. Um, and why burnout is important is because every stakeholder in healthcare is affected by burnout. Um, you have heard, if you had these lectures before, about how physicians are affected uh, by burnout, uh, understanding that um, burnout affects our mental health and worse, it affects our ability to do our job. Physicians who are experiencing burnout make more medical errors, make more surgical errors. They take more days off. They change jobs more frequently. They, um, they retire earlier. So they have a lot of problems sort of continuing their career. And you might imagine that an institution is a stakeholder that is also affected by burnout because if you have doctors that are not working at the top of their game, the institution has more medical errors. The institution has a worse um, reputation in the community. And in 2019, uh, the Archives of Internal Medicine published a paper that said that burnout in physicians costs the American healthcare system somewhere between two and a half and six and a half billion dollars per year. So even if you're a CEO, even if you're not really worried about the um, reputation of your institution, those type of figures make you stand up and take attention. And then the saddest stakeholder who is affected by burnout is the patient. If you're not giving your best care and the institution is not hitting on all cylinders, unfortunately, the patients suffer. And for these reasons, burnout is an important thing, not only for us as doctors, but for the institution and especially for the patients. I referenced before this MASLAC burnout inventory. This is the, this is the uh, validated gold standard test of how um, burnout is measured. Um, it scores on two main dimensions. If you've taken it, you realize it's about a 22 question test. It takes you about 30 minutes to do. So it's not an onerous test at all. The first measure that it looks at is the, um, our perception of our work-life balance. And most of us have, um, you know, if you've had a paper route, or I guess that's old, if you had a job flipping hamburgers, uh, you understood work-life balance. You said, I have to work this hard to make this much money that's a good deal or that's not a good deal. And that's how you decide whether you stayed there. I like to include all the great philosophers on my talks. And so here's one of our greatest, Dave Chappelle. Those of you who know him may know he's in trouble again, but back in the past, he had a two and a half seasons of an outstanding uh, comedy series on uh, Comedy Central. Uh, as he got more successful, he got paid more money beyond his wildest dreams. And, and suddenly he thought that it wasn't the show that he wanted to do. The work-life balance wasn't good, and so he simply walked away. And so this is someone who certainly walked the walk. The other uh, component of the Mass Like Burnout Survey is measuring emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and personal accomplishment, those three things I, I spoke about before. And um, when Dr. Maslach uh, put together all of these different components, 
they arrive at these five profiles. And if you've taken this test before, you were presented with your results and you fit into one of these five profiles. The best profile, the 46% on our survey, the blue profile, are the people that are engaged at work. They uh, can't wait to get out of the car. They come skipping into the office. They, they fire up the computer and they can't wait to see what challenges the day brings them. If you're an employer, you want everybody there, even at our hospital, at our medical system, which I would say is a great place to work. Fewer than half of the people are in that group. And as I said, 9% of people are exhausted emotionally and physically. They are cynical about their work with patients and they feel unfulfilled by their jobs. And these are the people that, um, that mitigation efforts have to help. What I want to explain now is, is something about how medicine and business um, pulling on each other makes, makes uh, burnout a little worse because everybody says, why am I only hearing about that now? It is because of our um, move toward corporate uh, medicine in this country. And as you see from this graph, uh, we thought our, our uh, life would work out one way and it doesn't always go as planned. And so I have a great interest in this subject. So I attend a lot of lectures by business people and by medical people. And so I wanna show you one way that I started to think about how medicine and business were, were going in different directions, even as medicine becomes more corporate. All of you have seen this before. This is the triple aim. This is the old paradigm. And the idea was we would improve healthcare um, through these three goals, to improve health, to lower costs, and to provide better care. And this I say is the old paradigm because it's somewhat antiquated. At the same meeting, I attended two lectures that, that uh, referenced this triple aim. One of them was given by a physician and they talked about the new quadruple aim. This is what we're gonna look after now. Uh, we're gonna look for good patient experience. We're gonna look for great population health. We're gonna reduce costs, which are important even to doctors, but we're gonna look after burnout. We're gonna look at the, the well-being and the care team. And this was the goal as far as the physicians were concerned. Later, I attended a business lecture when they talked about the new quadruple aim. And when you look at the administration's idea of the quadruple aim, they still had the patient in mind. They wanted to provide the right care, but at the right price, at the right place, and at the right time. These two triple aim, these two quadruple aims are diametrically opposed. One of them worries about the uh, doctor. One of them adds stuff that worries about the business. And so when you, know, when you look at something like this, you wonder, is burnout a predictable result of this corporate medicine that things pull in different directions? And there are clues that that is true, and it has been true for a long time. In uh, the last part of last century, like in the 70s, uh, this man, Milton Friedman, an award-winning economist from the University of Chicago, wrote a seminal article in the New York Times, and you can read the title there, that the social responsibility of business is to increase its profits full stop. The business, businesses shouldn't care about air pollution or equality or anything else. They should distribute business to people who can take care of those things if they want to. Uh, those of you that watch the Gordon Gecko in the movie Wall Street, that is the personification of this masculine, very masculine business strategy. Greed is good. Um, and this is an idea that is sort of um, drove medicine for a little while, uh, I'm sorry, drove business for a little while, and still to some extent drives business today. Doctors think about medicine and business a little different. We see ourselves as moral superheroes above the money, and that we're tireless advocates for our patients. And you can see uh, where those two viewpoints might oppose each other. 
And if you think that this is all sort of hyperbole, you haven't been reading the papers because this is one example and there are lots of them uh, where Wayne State pediatricians worked at a Children's Hospital of Michigan for more than a quarter of a century and over some contract dispute, the entire department was kicked out not because of quality healthcare, they provided quality healthcare, they had good patient satisfaction scores, but they just couldn't come to financial terms. And so they were let go after, as I said, more than 25 years at, at the hospital. And corporate medicine is not going away, it is here to stay. There are some big players that are interested in corporate medicine. And if you think it's hard to work for your general hospital now, wait until you have to draw blood or do rectal exams for Amazon. Um, it's going to be an entirely different uh, workflow. These people are not known uh, for being kind to their employees. And so someday we're all going to be, we may all be somewhere uh, working for them if we're not careful and if we don't pay attention. And so you learn in the business school that, bus that uh, businesses spend money on improvements and expect a return on our investment. And I'll go over each of these because they're important. Uh, when a business looks at how they're doing, they use metrics. You learn that in your uh, MBA uh, class. Um, one of the metrics that businesses look at for healthcare is production. How many, your patient throughput, how many patients are you seeing? They look at best practices and best practices is a disguise, honestly, for uh, administration because what best practice does is allow them to budget better. If they know I have 500 people with hypertension coming into our practice every month, and I know exactly how we are going to treat them because everybody's gonna do the exact same thing. I can make be better budget guesses. I can even, if I'm Amazon, go out and make deals with the, with the drug that we're gonna use uh, as our first line best practice and get reductions in that. So there's a lot of echoes for best practices that have really nothing to do with the care of the patient, but have a lot to do with the betterment of the business. The RVU compensation model, those of you that are on it may understand that it is also a way to budget. It is a carrot they hang out in front of us so that we pursue more RVUs, which, which because they budgeted appropriately brings them adequate money. This is a way to get us to work harder. We're chasing dollars, they're, they're making money. Um, those of you that are old enough may know that at once upon a time, doctors owned ancillaries. My own practice, my prior practice owned three hospitals outright, doctors own them. Uh, as we've become corp, uh, workers in corporate America, uh, those ancillaries have gone back to institutions. Many of us still have small pieces of surgery centers and things like that, but nothing like it used to be because the corporation has taken over. And the biggest thing, uh, bugaboo, that I think bothers people is this idea of satisfaction surveys. From a business standpoint, it makes perfect sense. You need to know that the customers are happy, um, but obviously from a doctor's standpoint, uh, it can be a difficult um, situation and we'll exp I'll explain that a little more in a further slide. Uh, but you understand from you learn Lean Six Sigma that if you look at these, if you're measuring these metrics, you would, as a business person, you would attack rate limiting steps. If you're not producing enough, go find that doctor and try to help them so that they can produce more because as I talked about the, um, the article before about the, the um, purpose of businesses to return profits, this is the goal of change if you're an administrator. Apple doesn't have a board meeting and say, next year, I think we ought to get much smaller. Um, uh, you know, Exxon doesn't say, how can we make less profit? Um, they all want to get bigger and bigger every year. Again, this is not a moral judgment. This is just the way business works. If you look at physicians, we want to help um, the companies we work for, <coughs> excuse me, but we toil in, a, in an evolving system and try to help to produce this return on investment. 
<coughs> All of you know that um, if you work for a corporation, you have some production metrics and these can be bothersome. Best practices are in a way sort of harmful to medicine because it takes away the art of medicine. If, you, if every patient you see with hypertension, excuse me, I'm gonna drown here. If every patient you see with hypertension is gonna be treated the same way in perpetuity, medicine's never really gonna change. And I would submit to you that it is doctors who look at things and make observations that help to, to move medicine along. Best practices sort of stifle creativity. The RVU compensation model, again, is one where we're walking on this, this wheel trying to chase money. Um, and it isn't necessarily best for our mental or physical health. I talked about ancillaries. And the biggest complaints that I've had about satisfaction surveys, especially, have been from um, ER doctors. And there are probably a lot of ER doctors out there. You may understand that part of many ER doctors' compensation has to do with their opioid stewardship, so not giving out a lot of pain medication. You may understand that a lot of ER doctors are uh, paid based on their satisfaction surveys. And when someone goes to the ER with pain, there are competing um, sort of priorities there and ER doctors are squeezed in the middle. And every specialty has similar uh, sort of dichotomies that they are dealing with that, that the med that administration probably didn't think of when they innocently sort of set up these satisfaction surveys. And so for doctors, there also is a rate limiting step, but that rate limiting step is care. Maybe the reason you're not seeing 50 patients is because Mr. Jones needed more time. Maybe the reason you're not following the best practice is because you notice something in this patient that's different from other patients and you think that you need to go another way. And so these again are models, the business and the, and the medical model pull against each other. When you look at the goal of change for uh, doctors, um, it might be a little different than that ever escalating line. Uh, those of you that were psychology majors as I was are familiar with this graph, but if you look at performance versus level of stress, if you have a book report due in five weeks, you're way over on the left there, you're calm, and your performance isn't very, uh, it, you're not performing, you're not cramming to get everything done. Where you want to be is to have enough level of stress to be in that column called eustress, that actually is a word, uh, which is where you are most productive, and, and that's where all of us would like to be, and obviously that's different for each uh, physician. Um, and then where the business would push you if you always are biggering and biggering is over to the right side of that graph in distress, where unfortunately our performance falls off quite a bit. So is this all just gaslighting? Did, did the uh, doctor, did the administration get together and say, look, doctors are motivated and devoted, they're perfectionists, they're compassionate, they wanna do a good job. So let's just squeeze every dollar we can out of them and push them as hard as we can. All of you know, um, administrators, all of you have sat in room in boardrooms where they've spoken to you, and I do not believe that that is their business plan. I do not believe that they are evil like that. I just think that the practice of medicine is foreign to them, and it is different from what they know in business. And that, and again, MB, uh, M, doctors with MBAs are in a great position to be able to sort of change this trajectory. And so we need to talk a little bit about, again, if you're going to sit at the table and you're going to speak authoritatively, you need to know what burnout is and what burnout isn't. And, and most importantly, burnout is not depression. Uh, this is another, if you... Uh, if you studied psychology, you're aware of this thing called a fundamental attribution error. This means that you, when you see someone who has a problem, you immediately assume that it is something, a flaw in their character. If a guy's asking for money on the side of the road, it's because he won't work. It's because he's lazy. 
even though it's more likely that one of us as doctors put him in bankruptcy from high medical bills. And so the fundamental attribution error is that there's a weakness in the person who is affected. And so burnout is not depression. Uh, burnout is not a problem with the person. It's a problem with the person's interaction with their work. It is a, a resolvable stress. Um, most people who go on, on vacation are relieved of their burnout because they're away from that stress. Now it's there when they come back, uh, but they're not necessarily burnt out on vacation. You may understand that if you're depressed, if you're depressed, if you have depression, um, this is a sad situation, obviously, and you are sad at work and you're also sad at Disneyland. Those are two different things and they should not be confounded with each other. And unfortunately they are. This is an article, I'm sorry to say, written by a urologist. And I'll just read the quote here if you can't read it. Uh, he said that, um, that doctors cannot wear a Rolex watch, live in a gated community, drive a Lexus, vacation in Europe, send your kids to private schools, and at the same time complain of moral injury or for that more matter burnout. The idea here is that money buys happiness. And I think we all know that that's a false uh, premise. If you studied psychiatry, you understand the idea of PTSD that you can have two soldiers sitting in the exact same foxhole, working the exact same battle, and one and when it's over, one of them gets up and goes to lunch and has no real problem with what went on, and the other one never recovers. And so it is our interaction with the job that causes burnout. People in the same situation will have very different reactions, but those reactions are real, and we have to get out of the mindset that it is a weakness of the person that causes them to be burned out. This is a slide that further amplifies the point. It's very difficult to read, so I'll explain what we're talking about. Um, if you look on the left side of the vertical axis, this is how satisfied physicians are with their work-life balance. And if you look along the horizontal axis here, it's how burned out physicians feel. And this is separated by specialties, so general surgeons, dermatology, et cetera. Um, if, this, if money bought happiness, if that urologist was right to say that we just need to snap out of it, this would be a straight line from the least well-paid specialty to the most well-paid specialty. And that is obviously not what you see here on this scatter plot. And because everybody's straining their eyes, the most happy people, the people that are up here, are occupational medicine folks. And the least happy people, the people that are bottom right, unfortunately, are urologists. Um, but this, this points out that it is not all about money. It is about the type of work that you do that can um, affect you and cause you burnout. Um, that person in that letter mentioned moral injury, and that also is something that's important in the burnout um, um, literature. Uh, specific to physicians, a moral injury is when a physician per, uh, perpetuates your witnesses and fails to prevent a transgression of deeply held moral beliefs, meaning you're doing something that you know isn't the best. And I'll explain that better. Um, those of you that have, pra have practiced medicine for a while may remember uh, that medicine in the room, in the exam room, used to be a whole bunch different. Uh, you sat there with the patient and you, and you sat there with yourself, and those were the only competing interests that you had. You wanted to take the best, most cost-effective uh, care of the patient, and those were the only people you had to consider. With corporate medicine, sorry, with corporate medicine, that's a little bit different. There are each of us, the patient and the doctor, now have new people in the room with competing interests. The patient has an insurer that says you got to start with this medicine, not that medicine. The patient has an insurer that says that we can't operate at this hospital, we have to operate at that hospital. And so those are interests that interfere with your uh, relationship with the patient. And most of us who work for corporate, uh, in corporate medicine, have an employer who says these are the people we refer to, 
These are where we get our ultrasounds. These are the pharmacies that we prefer. Uh, and you may know as a physician that that isn't necessarily the best place for your uh, patient, but you have pressures to try to use those patients. Places. And so the moral injury come from this excessive documentation that takes up a whole bunch of your time, but you understand doesn't help the patient a whit. Uh, it comes in defensive medicine, and you're not only defending yourself against lawsuits anymore, you're defending yourself against the um, patient, the, the administrator who comes to you and says, you're not seeing enough patients, you got to push these things faster. They may not be as blatant as that, but those are the pressures that you're working under. And so many of you are familiar with this sort of um, fable of the uh, on the right here um, of the frog in the pot. How you boil a frog is you do not drop a frog into boiling water because you'll jump right out. What you do is you put the frog in cold water and gently turn up the heat. We know because people have studied, if you look on the left there, the causes of burnout. And if I gave you a pencil and paper and enough time, you could come to these. Uh, why doctors feel burned out is they have a lack of autonomy. They have that poor work-life balance. They get a high patient volume. This is the biggest one, excessive professional tasks and administrative tasks. Um, a, a busy family practitioner because of EMR and because of all the emails and all the things they have to talk about in a recent paper looks at 130 different patients in a day. If you had 130 patients sit in your waiting room, imagine the chaos. And that's what people are expecting you to do. And I would submit to you that all of these things on the left are the warm water in the pot and each of them could be turned up so that eventually we're going to be in boiling water. We have to pay attention to this. And so what can we do? Um, one of the, if you attended this uh, talk a few years ago, you heard an excellent talk by Dr. Van Ness, another uh, alum of PEMBA, who talked to you about ways to manage your time and uh, reduce your physician dissatisfaction. And certainly, if you are a doctor, you understand that you should be exercising, you should be practicing good self-care. Uh, that is not a surprise to you. But what may be a surprise to you or probably isn't is you cannot exercise your way out of burnout. Again, they can turn up the heat to a point uh, where you're not going to be able to do enough push-ups to feel better. So there's other ways. And the best thing I learned in PEMBA had nothing to do with uh, finance or economics. It was that there were smart people in other fields. Doctors think we're pretty smart, and we are. Uh, but we're not necessarily smart about everything. And there are people that are succeeding through mental endurance in other fields, people that sail across the ocean by themselves, that run 200 miles in a day. And so if you look at psychologists and therapists and athletes, you can find that there's a way to build your business, um, uh, I'm sorry, to build your mental toughness and mental toughness helps you with burnout. All of us once upon a time had a measurable thing in psychology called grit. Uh, grid is unyielding coverage in the face of hardship. Remember your first day of medical school, you knew nothing about the Krebs cycle. You got a big pile of books and you had a firmness of mind that you were going to go in there and get it done. All of you once had tremendous grit. In our institution, there are executive coaches who work with the administration all the time to help them to regain their grit, to refocus, to get some fortitude and guts and pluck back. And these, um, so these things are, these types of coaches are available to you and you can re-get grit and people with high grit scores have low burnout scores. You also had in medical school, you might imagine, remember a lot of resilience. You were on rounds, you got asked a question and you failed that question miserably, but the next day you were back there ready to answer more questions. A lot of us as we've come through practice 
have lost our resilience, our ability to recover. As we said, that emotional exhaustion, this can also be coached. This can also be uh, made better through therapy, and this can also be improved, and I would uh, urge you to do that. Um, you have to take a, a long look at your work-life balance. You have to take a conscious evaluation of your time, what your goals were when you started medicine, and whether or not you're really chasing your values. Um, if you come to the conclusion that I'm not just making enough money, then work more. But very few people, when they take sober reflection of their life, come to that conclusion. And so this is a pretty good cartoon about how we were taught to measure success and what we really should be looking at. And what I did find in my OAP is that when you looked at those older physicians that had been there a while, they thought more like on the bottom graph, they understood that life was more 360 and not just this black and white salary job title thing. So there are things you can do at your institution that obviously would help burnout tomorrow and the, and the administrators know that. Physicians dislike EMR, but you may understand that EMR is big business and it ain't gonna go away. And insurance companies demand it, and they are really running the game now, especially with EMR. Doctors in the United States do not like EMR. We do not think they're very um, user-friendly. This graph is flipped over, though, if you go to Europe. People, European physicians are very happy, for the most part, with EMR because they do not have the onerous documentation requirements that we have. So EMR doesn't have to be the worst thing in the world. It just is uh, for the way we use it in the United States. And hopefully through pressure from physicians, especially physicians who have MBAs, we can change the tide here. Um, as I said, there are demonstrable ways to sort of make that better. When we complain to our administration, this is what they came up with. Classes we could do after clinic, long videos that we could look at, and a system that we would have to search. For a business person, this is a very usable solution. This is a very good idea. But for busy doctors who already don't like the computer, this looks like hell. Um, again, smart people have already looked at all of this, and we are aware of very um, usable EMR interventions that will help to reduce burnout. And they are things, again, that you could write down if I gave you a pencil and paper. You want to reduce the amount of documentation. As you understand, that is usually not driven by your corporation. It is driven by um, insurance companies. And in some cases, we have to start pushing back against that. You want to streamline documentation, which was the goal of EMR to begin with, but somehow never was realized. Standardized order sets help. We have lots of them in our institution. Hopefully you do too. Um, there are a lot of questionnaires because our corporate, our um, business people want to be involved in a lot of research. And um, that requires the, the physicians and the patients to fill out a lot of questionnaires. It doesn't necessarily help their medical care, but it does help our bottom line. Uh, you have to allow nurses and MAs to do order entries because those are those excessive tasks, those 130 patients that you have to see. Uh, those, those, a lot of that work could be offloaded to other people. Scribes are useful to help uh, reduce burnout from EMR. And overall, just slowing down the patient load gives you more time to take care of the things you need to take care of. If you look at that list, that's an expensive list. Doctors can't demand that stuff and just get it. It, it, it does require some administration input. So for those of you that are super wonky and want to see the EMR part of, uh, I'm sorry, the MBA part of this, I have that. Uh, I liked the teaching at Pemba so much that when I left, I went and took a course at the Neely School of Business here locally in TCU. And so this is for the wonky people in there. Uh, this is their idea of what the how um, leadership is changing over time. 
you don't have to read every box here, but what the purpose of this is to sort of quantify everybody's power um, in an in a institution or in a uh, corporation. Um, and they the TCU folks would argue that there's old forms of power and new forms of power. And so the traditional basis of power are those old forms of power. This is uh, basically the Mad Men corporation that you saw in the old TV show where people were loyal to a company where they work there forever um, and they establish competence, they maintain their competence. It helped if you were white and male, uh, but you also assumed higher and higher leadership responsibilities and you added value to the organization. So you came up from within and this is the way uh, power used to be distributed in a corporation. More and more now, as corporations have multiple different and healthcare entities, including home health organizations and surgery centers and things like that. So as you have uh, more multifactorial, if you will, uh, businesses, um, new bases of power are more based on social things like fostering strong relationships among those different arms of a corporation, promoting the mission of the entire corporation. Again, having leadership responsibilities, but a lot of brokering. If you want to look at that as a, um, as a graph, on the top there is the formal old hierarchy, and this is where a guy named Josh might sit, and he always uh, reports up in this straight line manner. In the new, more informal network, you can see where Josh is a pretty powerful guy in the company because everyone by email or by message groups that he's on or by Zoom meetings like this, he has access to people across the company, something that was unheard of previously. And so if you continue with this strained, anatomy, uh, strained analogy, if you look at what we just straight up doctors have in our um, medical, um, uh, in the medical business model, we do have some posi positional power, legitimate positional power by being doctors, but we don't have a lot of this connection power over here. We don't know what's going on in, in, um, in the boardrooms. We don't have necessarily access to all the mission statements and everything that we might need to make sort of industry changing decisions. If you look at the people that are administrators, they don't fill all the boxes either. Um, they have legitimate power because the corporation gives it to them. They do have all that informational power. They know um, where the corporation is going and they make those five-year plans. But in medicine, especially when you're dealing with physicians, it is important that you, also, that, that you need the worker bees along with you. And administrators and doctors don't always see the eye to eye. So to beat a dead horse that I've already beaten before, people who have... Um, doctorates and MBAs are in a unique position to fill all of these boxes and to do everything that is required of them to sort of move the corporation forward. And I would urge you to memorize this fact, if not this chart, and use it to your advantage uh, when you uh, tell people, here's what I want to do next. Um, there are roadblocks to addressing burnout, and these are things that you'll bang up against if you sort of look at burnout or whatever you choose to sort of tackle in your organization. Um, you have to understand if you've ever read Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, uh, that's, a, that's a book about horrible working conditions in, meat, in the meat cutting industry. Uh, I forget when, in the 1700s or 1800s. The administration can make your job so terrible that the entire staff has burnout. Now, that's not to their advantage, but they could do such a thing. But the flip side is not true. They cannot unilaterally fix burnout. They cannot make money. They cannot keep the corporation alive uh, without the consent of the physicians and the, and the cooperation of the physicians. And again, that's where we come in. 
Um, if the pandemic taught us every anything, it's that culture beats science, right? Uh, when you look at the, the early days of the pandemic, uh, Dr. Fauci had a bunch of facts that said, this is how we should manage this. But the culture warriors uh, were against him. And initially, at least the scales tipped on the side of culture. And so in this analogy, the doctors would represent the culture that we are the ones that the administration would have trouble uh, changing things about burnout without the doctors being on board. From a doctor's standpoint, our problem is money. And I, again, uh, if you like rap music, you know this song, uh, but it is money over everything. Uh, that it, everything that I showed you, scribes, uh, whatever, whatever it is, is gonna cost money. And just because doctors ask for it, doesn't mean we're gonna get it. So doctors need the cooperation of the administration and vice versa. Um, as we wind down here, there are basically sort of three types of problems that come from burnout, and all of them, um, doctors and MBAs are uniquely uh, suited to sort of help. If you look at addressing burnout from a system level, if you took the MassLAC survey, they present a big ream of paper that tells you about your institution, and it tells you very fine detail about the business problems that you're having that are that are grading on the physicians, and it tells you very specifically about what specific problems uh, the physicians have that also would need some um, some work. And I would submit to you that no one can speak with uh, the, the same gravitas knows a lot about the administration and someone who has been in the trenches with those doctors. No administrator can do it as well as you can. There are team issues, and this is a real live uh, Kaizen event that we did in my clinic because for the life of us, we could not move patients from the front door to the back door. And so we uh, shut down the clinic, uh, looked at the process on sticky papers, like, like uh, sticky papers on the wall, like you're supposed to do. And we dramatically improved the process of how patients move through. We did spaghetti diagrams. My, I have a green belt now uh, in Lean Six Sigma based upon this project. And not only do I love having that piece of paper, but it dramatically improves how, um, how our clinic works. And it got me uh, further lauded uh, from the uh, board uh, when I showed them that this could be done in all these clinics to help reduce burnout um, because the clinics are bogged down unnecessarily. Um, obviously, physicians are best to sort of deal with these individual issues because you can talk to someone uh, who has problems like this on a personal level. You've been there, you've complained about call, you don't like um, that you don't have enough access to clinics to see patients. And so you have the business techniques listed there on the right, but you also have the compassion. And again, the gravitas for a physician to listen to you, to understand you, to confide in you. And nobody's gonna solve this problem better than a doctor with an MBA. And because Dr. Leiter's on this call, I want you to know that metrics are essential. And I have attended three different institutions now. I, I went to a Stanford course about burnout and they have their own conceptual model of how you uh, see fix burnout and how you measure how you're doing. The AMA, as we talked about, has their own sort of program that's very useful, but you gotta, you gotta love the Demaic. It's the prettiest of those graphs. I think you'd all agree. Uh, but however you do it, the, the administrators are gonna wanna know, we spent $5 to make this clinic better. Show us it's better. And the way you're gonna do that is by constant sort of measurements. And as much as you think this may be a bother to sort of learn about, it is essential if you're gonna get the attention of people in business. And so our conclusions here are hopefully pretty uh, obvious that corporate medicine has uh, presents novel challenges to us to providing quality patient care and to being good doctors. 
and the means of the, and ends of the doctors and the administrators can differ and often pull in different directions. And burnout is one of the, the results of, one of, of all these differences. And mitigations of these differences and mitigations of burnout requires understanding of both viewpoints. And again, the same dead horse, physicians with an MBA are uniquely qualified for this role. And I think you should pursue it. Um, the last thing I want to say is that when I talk to people around, when, when you're given a new job, um, what we always say is we have imposter syndrome, right? We step up to that table and I'm, do I really belong here? Do I know enough? Am I smart enough? Um, what I was told by, this is from an administrator, uh, that if everyone here was smarter than you and they already knew the solution to this problem, we wouldn't be having this meeting. So nobody at that table knows how to solve it. Everybody is looking for help and you bring a unique a viewpoint and a unique set of skills that nobody else possesses. And I would encourage you to exploit it. And again, I thank you for your time. I finished in under an hour, so I did exactly what I was supposed to do. And I appreciate it. If any of you have questions beyond what we answered here, this is my email. I'm slow with email, but I, because I don't want to get burned out, but I will eventually answer those things. And thank you again for inviting me and thank you for listening. Bravo, Kirk, thank you. I, I am so happy that Demaic was part of your talk, to be honest. Um, thing I put on a slide. <laughs> um, I, I had a question from something you were talking about earlier, and that is uh, the standardization of clinical protocols and how that can be detrimental. But do you think that it has a place uh, in how we deliver healthcare, because there is a lot of healthcare that is fairly similar, uh, even across patient groups. And if we don't have some baseline, well, you know, I, I don't see how we'll ever be, be able to go beyond that. And I'm just going to give you a quick example. When I was years and years ago, when I was working uh, in the Quality, the external quality review organization for TenCare, we created clinical guidelines. And one of the things I said was, these are the starting point, because what we're going to do is use these to study what people are actually doing and see if we can identify better practices than these are suggesting. So, and, and so I'm, I'm sort of setting up an argument here is what I'm doing. But what, what's, your, what's your perception? No, your, your argument is right. That, that it, I mean to say that slavish and perpetual um, sort of this is the way we do things from here on out. So the best use of best practices from a doctor standpoint is we're going to standardize the care here and we're going to see about our outcomes. And if our outcomes are excellent, this is going to become the standard of care. But every innovation in medicine is somebody that sort of stepped out of bounds a little bit. And so, so I think as physicians, we understand, look, this guy looks a little different. I'm going to treat him a little differently. Hey, look, this is a whole new way of treating this. We should run down this road a little bit. Doctors are, I think, open-minded to the best care. So if the standard of, if the, um, protocols become the standard of care with the idea that when something better comes along, we're going to look for it. That's fine. If the idea is this is how we treat hypertension from here on out, we always use this medicine because we made a deal with this pharmaceutical company to get more of this or, yeah. or, or the, those business practices. And again, I am often running this stuff to the absurd. I would say, as I said at the beginning, I do not think most business people are in this game to sort of harm patients at the expense of, uh, of money. But I also think that there's intricacies of medical care that they don't necessarily understand and that they need our 
sort of expertise to sort of meld those two things. Your description of what best practices are is the ideal description of best practices. But, but often when it's just put on your EMR to say, just check these, this is how you treat, in my case, hematuria. These are the tests you get. These are the things you do. Um, it, it sort of disregards what you find in the exam room. And I think that is potentially dangerous and it limits creativity in medicine, which is how we learn new things. Thanks. And that's kind of what I was hoping to hear because, and this goes back to what you were saying and what I have, you know, I have said since PEMBA started, and that is physicians with the business training of an MBA have probably the best ability to, to uh, integrate those, those issues and determine how these things are going to be done. So I, you know, I appreciate that. Are there any other questions while we're chatting here. Don, there's a question from Sunil in the chat. What are the best tools to measure and quantify burnout and its impact? Um, there are a bunch. The, the MASLAC survey that I mentioned, it, it's not super expensive if your administration buys in. Um, it, it, is a, it is the most, it's the gold standard. It's the most standardized. It's the one that everybody looks to. Um, and if you want to compare your results with other hospitals, that's what most other hospitals have done. Uh, but there are other sort of, uh, the AMA has uh, one called a Z-score, which is, I think, maybe five or six questions that gives you a great measure. Um, and there are multiple other ones that are, that are free. Um, what, what it, the problem with trying to test for burnout uh, is you have to have the administration behind you um, because you want to send this out to the entire medical staff. You need sort of a, a view of the entire um, hospital, unless you're just sort of looking at your department. So if you just search burnout tests, there are many validated uh, burnout tests available, but the MASLAC is the gold standard. That's the one that's given by most uh, institutions. And, and it really gives you the most fulsome uh, data. Um, they've, they've done zillions of these tests with doctors and nurses, and they can really split the atom and sort of show you very little nuances that you might have to figure out if you use one of the free tests. I think, too, you've got a good example of how to treat burnout with Kate and her cat. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a, just a the follow cat up that question. only wants to be uh, held when Zoom is on. Actually, if it's okay, I wanted to add a little bit to the whole idea of different ways of measuring burnout. So there's sort of the institutional side and the individual side. And I think with the institutional side, regardless of which tool we decide to uh, apply in our individual environments, I mean, the key thing is that it's, it really needs to be promoted sort of by both the business leadership and the clinical leadership. And on the individual side, probably the easiest one is what is called the well-being index. I believe it was developed at the mayor first and then... It's readily available for free. And they kind of send you this little reminders on a yearly basis and say, how are you doing? And they keep asking sort of similar questions. And it was validated, I think, at the mayor and maybe at Stanford as well in their whole compassionate training thing. Yeah, I agree that there's a lot of those out there. There's even one that people like at UT Southwestern they use and they randomly sort of choose physicians and they just send them a stoplight on Fridays, uh, green, red, yellow. How are you doing? And if somebody comes in yellow a bunch of times, they you know reach out to them. Is there something we can do to help? Um, and so that, you know, as long 
what you have to do again to get back to the Demaic thing is you have to measure your progress. So you have to do it more than once. Um, but I would agree there's a bunch of different measures and you never know unless you measure. And so whatever one works best for you uh, probably works best. I have a question for Kirk and I, I need, I guess I need you to look into your crystal ball for this. How, when are we gonna get ahead of this? It's really easy, it's just like preventative health. It's really easy to treat the disease once you see the symptoms, but how do we avoid the symptoms and get ahead of it so that we never get to this place? Well, I, I think, the again, the corporization of medicine sort of exacerbated all of these things. And, and in, at least in my institution, um, the, the, the people at the administration are um, worried about it. They started this committee. They have funded, you know, the work that we've done. We're gonna we're gonna ask them for some bigger um, amounts of money, and we'll see sort of where they are. But but as I said, smart people have looked at this. Um, it is all it is all the administrative tasks that EMR puts on us, uh, and all the administrative tasks we have to do, just answering phone calls, doing all those things all day. That absolutely drops to the bottom line. That causes burnout. Um, and so there are things that those things that I showed you are very well uh, documented and uh, they can be um, dealt with. It just is gonna be a matter of, does the institution sort of turn toward that's a priority? Um, and, and an example here, you know, again, to tout our um, administration is the next time we give the MassLAC survey, we're giving it to everybody, people that work on the loading docks, people that, that are uh, working in environmental services. So we are going to change the culture. It's our goal to change the culture of the entire hospital to be sure that as we sort of push them to do new jobs and to do new things, uh, that we're making sure we're keeping their uh, mental um, their, their burnout uh, scores in check, not, and it, it makes a business, it's a business decision for to replace a physician costs about a million dollars if you lose one and have to get one back. So even if you said, I don't really care about their burnout, I just don't want to stop spending a million dollars because I lose a new doctor every six months. Um, the way to do it is to show everyone what I just showed you here, administration, here's what this is costing you in terms of your reputation, in terms of money, in terms of uh, how the patients view us, and here's what it's costing you in terms of doctors. I think our administration sort of understands that. And so these are surmountable problems. You just have to have everybody pulling in the same direction. Um, and, and that's gonna take people like us, I think, um, uh, to, to get that done. Vanessa, and you need to you need a champion, right? You need somebody Absolutely. or a group of people really, and hopefully they're uh, MBA with an MD, right? Or MD with an MBA to help get that. 15 years from now, someone will be talking about the next thing that's just driving everybody crazy, but these are the ones we can see now. Kirk, and, and um, the other thing you mentioned, just the, the, you know, the big thing, which is retention and recruitment. But there are a lot of issues with regard, to, with regard to physicians who are burned out, with regard to patient safety, with regard to a lot of the metrics for which a health system is paid right now, uh, which include the safety metrics, but also include some of the quality issues. If the physicians are engaged and they're not burned out, they're going to have much more of a tendency to work with staff to make and the environment for patients better as well. Would you, would, do you agree with that? hundred percent. And and there's a move for a lot of hospitals to make physician burnout a, a KPI, a key performance indicator. So our work on burnout, I mean, it's, it, you know, we've, we've had new people 
This institution where I work is special in that we don't only hire people right out of residency. Uh, we, we hire a lot of old folk, older practitioners who have worked in the community for a while. So it's a broad range of folks. Um, but some of the newer um, medical students or, 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 I'm sorry, newer residents do ask about what do you do about physician wellness? I mean, that, that's, a, that's something they're asking about. So it's on the radar of a lot of people. And, and again, it perks up the ears of the administration. Oh, this is a recruiting tool too. We should do this. Yeah. All right. One more call for questions. Does anybody have any questions before we finish up here? I don't see any in the chat. So I think, Kirk, you're off the hook, my friend. All right. I can't Bye. thank you enough. This is great. It's fun. I wish I could do it in Knoxville, though, because burnout gets better when I'm away from here. <laughs> we can, we can make that, that happen. Right. We can right. make that happen in the future. All right. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right. Thank you, everybody, for joining us.